It's rather exciting. This is the last bit of John's Gospel, um, and then we'll have preached the whole John's Gospel. We've studied the whole John's Gospel over the last three and a half years at various different points. It's the last little section that we haven't looked at, so I'm quite excited about that. Um, isn't that good to, that we can work through um, books of the Bible together um, and hear what God is saying to us? Let's, um, let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us uh, through your word, and we pray you show us uh, wonderful things uh, in this particular portion of it as we listen to Jesus pray, for we ask it in his name. Amen. Uh, Tim, could you just, um, this may reconnect, but at the moment it's not connected, so if we have the first slide up, thank you. Uh, a recent count put the number at 45,000. An estimated 45,000 different denominations, Christian denominations, around the world. And you might wonder, what went wrong? I mean, Jesus had 11 disciples, and they were all there in the upper room with him in John 17. They were all united in their faith in Jesus. 2,000 years later, 45,000 denominations. It doesn't look as if Jesus' prayer was answered. And we might ask, as we hear a stat like that, or we um, read this passage, what is Christian unity? Is it a pipe dream that is forever out of our reach and we may as well just forget about it? Or is it something that is absolutely essential to who we are? Is it so essential to Christians that we should just pursue it no matter what costs, no matter what compromises? Or is it just a pipe dream so we should just forget about it? Well, the answers that we come up with to questions like those are going to affect all sorts of things. They will affect how we do church together. They will affect how we connect with other churches. They will, it will affect where we agree to disagree but remain united and where we figure that actually a disagreement is significant enough that we actually need to separate. You see, Christian unity is one of those things that every Christian agrees is a good thing in principle but it's so hard to achieve in reality. And Christian disunity, on the other hand, is one of those things that often puts Christ, uh, people who aren't Christians off. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're open to the person Jesus. You're intrigued by some of the things he taught. But when you look at such a divided church, 45,000 different denominations, you think, why do I want to get involved with that? They can't even agree amongst themselves. But whether we're Christians today already who believe that unity, Christian unity is a good thing, or whether we're not uh, Christian people yet and we're put off by disunity, I think we can all be helped by this passage today, this final part of Jesus' final prayer before he goes to the cross. In this chapter, he's already prayed for glory. That was verses 1 to 5. He's prayed for faithfulness and mission, verses 6 to not, uh, 19. And now he prays for unity. And it's not just a space filler or an afterthought. It is really essential to what he is praying about. His prayer reveals three truths about unity that I think he wants us to remember and to live by. Uh, here's the first one. Uh, Christian unity is vital for Christian mission. Christian unity is vital for Christian mission. Verses 20 to 23. Jesus says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So if you remember, he began by praying for himself 
He then widened the circle a little bit and started praying for his original 11 uh, apostles. And now he's praying for everyone else who is going to believe through their message. In other words, he's praying for you and for me and the church throughout history. Do you remember how the previous section finished? Jesus said, verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Uh, What he was praying there is that God would send his apostles out on mission, set them apart, sanctify them to take the gospel message to the world. And God answered that prayer. They took the gospel message about Jesus everywhere they went. And the gospel has never stopped spreading since. You and I are the fruit of this prayer. And now Jesus prays that the church that has believed through the message that the apostles took would be united for the sake of mission. Verse 21, I pray that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So Jesus is saying here that Christian unity is is modeled on the relationship between himself and and the Father. And at the very least, that seems to suggest an absolute, wholehearted, interdependent commitment to one another. But just in case we're thinking, well, this sounds a little bit fuzzy, a little bit kind of hard to pin down, I think he goes further. Verse 22, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity or complete oneness. So what is the glory that God gave to Jesus? Well, it it seems to me that that glory is the message about Jesus. It's his identity, which he has given to his apostles to take to the world. It It is glorious because it is a glorious message about the identity of Jesus as God's son and God's saviour. Uh, John, um, writing earlier on in the gospel about Jesus' death, uh, put it this way. He says, Jesus died for the scattered children of God to make them one. That is the glorious gospel message, that Jesus died to make us one. And that is the foundation, the gospel is the foundation of all true Christian unity. You don't find Christian unity just by hunting for the lowest common theological denominator. It depends upon Christian people sticking to the gospel message that has been passed down through the centuries, originally from the apostles. And that doesn't just mean signing up to a certain set of beliefs. It doesn't just mean standing up in church and saying the creed. It means living by those things, those truths, as well. I wonder if that is the idea behind Jesus' prayer in verse 23 for complete unity, complete unity. Um, A number of years later, the Apostle John was writing to a church, to churches that were disunited. They were disunited doctrinally on the things they believed. They were disunited on ethics, how they lived. And this is what he wrote. 1 John chapter 2, verse 5. Whoever keeps his word, in him truly is the love of God perfected or literally completed. By this we know that we are in him. In other words, doctrine and behavior go together. Sometimes it is said that doctrine, truth, divides, but love unites. And so what happens then is that a thorny theological issue arises in a church, maybe a local church, maybe a denomination, and and we're told, oh, choose between the two. Don't bother dividing over theology when Jesus just told us to love each other. But you see, that is a false choice. 
Doctrine and love are two sides of the same coin. Christian unity is relational. As Jesus said, it's modeled on the relationship between himself and the Father. But it's also doctrinal and behavioral. It depends on Jesus' teaching and it depends on, on, on our obedience to that teaching. Or we might put it another way. Christian unity involves seeking um, truth, communion, and ethics all at the same time if we want to be united. But none of those things, doctrine or truth or communion or relationship or ethics behavior, none of those things is the ultimate end to Christian unity. What is the ultimate end to Christian unity? Christian unity is vital for Christian mission because God is a missional God. You see, Jesus says it twice, verse 21. The end of this first bit of the prayer, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And we might think, that's a bit odd. Because as I've been reading through John's Gospel, I've, I've always heard that the world is in rebellion against God. So how can the world believe? Because John says that, well, John's Gospel says that God has to take people out of the world and give them to Jesus in order for them to believe. Well, the next little bit helps us. Verse 23, the end of verse 23. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So what is happening here is that Christians are living this life, this united life of love together, and they become the most extraordinary visual aid for the gospel. The world looks at them and sees God's love in action. One commentator put it like this. Christians themselves have been caught up in the love of the Father for the Son, secure and content and fulfilled, loved by the Almighty himself with the very same love he reserves for his Son. That is the kind of love that begins to display itself amongst Christian people. And when someone who's not a Christian looks at that, they begin to think, God is doing something here. Maybe that was your experience before you became a Christian. You saw that love amongst Christian people and you thought, there's something here that I want. So Christian unity isn't just a nice thing to aim for. It is vital for Christian mission, which is why Jesus prays for it and why we should pray for it too. Now, we might look at a statistic like 45,000 in different denominations and we might think, that is overwhelming. Where do I even start? But it's not impossible. It's not impossible to pray for unity amongst ourselves. It's not impossible to pray for um, unity within the commission network of churches that we're part of. It's not even impossible to pray for unity in the Church of England or elsewhere. You see, we can work for unity as well as pray for unity. So at the moment, I'm just trying to set up a little group of local churches which are united on gospel basics and essentials so that we might work closely together on some things. And we're just beginning that with um, our friends at East Hill Baptist Church just up the road, just working on that and um, thinking, how could we be united together in a way that helps us do mission together? We had a little go at that with the street evangelism that happened recently. And it might be that there are other things we can do as we pray and think about that together. When Jesus prayed for unity, he did so because it is vital for mission. But in the next verse of his prayer, he looks to the future. And he gives us a wonderful motivation to keep going in our mission. 
So second, Christian unity will be gloriously fulfilled in heaven. Christian unity will be gloriously fulfilled in heaven. Verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. Just listen to that again. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. One of the things the whole lockdown experience taught us, isn't it? The importance of physical connection with people. We're not made to live in cyberspace. And Jesus has the same desire for physical connection with us. He enjoyed that with the apostles and the other other disciples who lived with him for those three years. But just get this, he's not experienced that with you yet. He knows all about you. He's the son of God. He knows you better than anyone else. You belong to him. And yet Jesus has never been in the same room as you. He's never with his own human eyes seen you across a room. He's never sat down and had a meal with you or laughed with you, or heard your voice with, his, with sound waves going into his ears. He hears you spiritually, but not physically. He has never been with us in the same way that he was with those first disciples. And this prayer, it seems to me, suggests that he's a bit dissatisfied with that. He wants to be with us in the same place forever. And that's not because he's lonely without us. It's for our benefit, ultimately, not his. He has something wonderful to share with us. Verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. What does it mean that we will see his glory? Well, I was trying to help one of my um, sons this week with some revision for a science test, and we were trying to think about gravity. It was rather hard work, to be honest. How do you explain something you know is true, but which you can't see, and to be honest, is just beyond your tiny brain, or at least beyond my tiny brain? Thankfully, Jesus gives us a clue about what this involves. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. So the glory Jesus wants us to see is intimately connected with the Father's eternal love for him. He prays that we would see and savour the mind-blowing, overwhelming love that the Father and the Son and the Spirit have enjoyed together for all eternity. Let me give you a little bit of theology. The doctrine of the Trinity, one God, three persons, tells us that God is community. He has always existed forever in a glorious relationship of love. There's a great quote here from C.S. Lewis um, up on screen. The words, God is love, have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something one person has for another. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. You see, love is not a phase that God is going through and might fall out of. God won't wake up one morning and think, they really are a rotten bunch. I'm just not in love with them anymore. He always has been love because he always has been love because he is Trinity. 
There always was and ever will be perfect communion, united love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus' extraordinary prayer says he wants you and me to experience that forever. You see, that would be impossible with a solitary God or a multiplicity of gods or with no personal God at all. Now, the Quran might tell us that Allah is loving, but he cannot be his love. He cannot be love. He cannot share love because he is just one. He does not exist for all eternity in a communion with himself. The pantheon of Hindu gods are capricious. They punish sins from a former life. A friend of mine who's a pastor told me this week that his sister, who used to be a, a devout Hindu, he was a Hindu as well, came to Christ when she concluded that she could not be loved by such unpredictable gods. There is no guarantee of love in Buddhism either. They don't believe in a personal, eternal, loving creator at all. See, only the Christian doctrine of the Holy Trinity shows us that love is the fabric of creation because it is the heart of God, essential to the eternal need-nothing creator. The, the doctrine of the Holy Trinity shows us that, that God is the answer to every longing for love in every human heart. And Jesus' prayer says, I want my disciples to experience that love, not just now, not just for a little moment, but forever. One day, if we trust in Jesus, we will get to a place where we will be with him and we will bask in that extraordinary love. So any love we are looking for in this life will pale into insignificance compared to that. And when we get there, we won't be disunited. We will be fully and finally united. How could we not be? Because if God himself is this perfect communion, this united communion of love, then of course we will be united there too. Christian unity will be gloriously fulfilled in heaven. I hope that we are looking forward to that. And I hope that that motivates us to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. Because our world is desperate for love, seeking it everywhere. But there is only one place where it is really found, and that is by being drawn into this communion of relationship with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, how do we grow in unity, though? How do we grow in unity? That, is, that I think, is the final thought of the prayer. Thirdly and finally, Christian unity is transformed by divine love. We've thought about the love we're going to experience in the future, but in the present, divine love transforms our unity now. Verses 25, 26. I guess, strictly speaking, Jesus isn't really praying in these couple of verses. He's not asking for anything. He's just telling God something. And what he does is he picks up themes that he's picked up on various different points in this prayer, but especially this thread of love, which has just gone through these three paragraphs. But before he gets to love, he just begins this final section in a slightly unusual way. I wonder if you noticed it. Verse 25, he says, Righteous... Father. Why does he call him that? Well, we might think that's a bit of an unusual language for, to hear in John's Gospel. We don't tend to hear righteousness language in John's Gospel very much. 
I think what Jesus is doing at this point is just saying, Father, you are right, and I know that your disciples are right too. To put it in a modern expression, my disciples, those who believe in me through the gospel message, they're on the right side of history. I know that the world has rejected you, but my disciples have accepted you. You are, they've accepted me as your envoy. They've made the right decision. And so there's, there's some encouragement for us here, the way he calls the Father righteous Father. If we ever sit here and we think, I've made the wrong decision. Do you ever, do you ever experience that in your Christian life? You think, what if I've just got it all wrong? There was news this week, uh, the police were texting, Metropolitan Police were texting 70,000 people in London who apparently, um, or possibly, have been victims of one of the biggest ever online banking scams. And maybe you sometimes, in moments of doubt, think, have I become one of the most gullible, duped people in history by believing in Jesus? Jesus reassures us that we have drawn the right conclusions. His Father is righteous. He's right. And if we have trusted him as the one who sent Jesus into the world, we are right as well. And once we trust him, we can be sure, 100% sure, that we will be transformed by his love. Verse uh, 26, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Uh, Jesus hasn't actually mentioned the Holy Spirit in this prayer yet, has he? But the Holy Spirit is clearly here between the lines. He's, he is the one who's going to help Jesus to continue to make the Father known. He is going to reveal the character of God more and more uh, through what the apostles write, inspired by the Spirit. And he is going to convince our minds more and more that these are not just simply ancient or even beautiful words, but true words from God. So through the Spirit, Jesus will continue to make the Father known. And second, the Spirit will do these things so that the love the Father has for Jesus may be in us and that Jesus himself may be in us. Jesus makes the Father known so that the love of the Holy Trinity can be something we experience in the present. And if you ever wonder how we can be more united, I think this promise points us in the right direction. We don't just need to try harder to love. We don't need to cajole people to behave in a certain way. We don't need to hunt for the lowest common theological denominator to find unity. Now, what we need is more divine love amongst ourselves. And only the Spirit can bring that love into our lives. We need to pray, God, teach us to love as you have loved. Take some of that love that has existed for all eternity within the Godhead and, and pour it into my life. Pour it into our lives together. And the more we pray, the more God will answer. And the more he answers, the more he will transform our love. And the more he transforms our love, the more he will send us out in mission. Uh, just as we finish, I guess we could say, can we, that um, unity is the greatest advert and the greatest risk for the gospel. Disunity can put many people off and say, why am I going to bother joining that group of people who can't agree amongst themselves? Unity, on the other hand, is a wonderful attraction. People look and say, they've got something there that I want to be part of. Christian unity is God's plan, it is Jesus' prayer. And so may we be a church that, that pursues it 
amongst ourselves. May we seek united partnerships with other churches. May we pray for it in the wider Christian world. It is not an impossible pipe dream or a bland statement that doesn't really mean anything. It is vital for Christian mission. It is gloriously fulfilled in heaven. It is transformed now by divine love. Shall we bow our heads and pray? Lord Jesus, thank you for praying for us. All those years before we were born, you prayed for us and for our church and for your church around the world. Lord, we pray that you would pour into our lives by your spirit that love that we cannot fathom, but one day we will experience for all eternity, that love that has existed between you and the Father and the Spirit forever. And we pray that you'd transform us in that love. You'd help us to look forward to enjoying it forever in heaven. And you would send us out in the meantime on mission to share that love with a world that needs it so much. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.